So Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 to 20. It's there that we read these words. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope, hold of this hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Well, I want to introduce you to two people, one Sam and the other one Bob. Now, Sam has the most tedious and boring job in the world. Sam sits by himself in a very, very small room with three large crates in front of him. And in the first crate are wadgets, and in the second crate are widgets, and the third one is empty. And Sam takes the wadgets and he screws them onto the widgets, thus making a widgety wadget. And Sam does this for eight hours a day, six days a week. On Sam's first day, the boss walked up to him and handed him a check for $10,000, post-dated 365 days from Sam's start date. Now, Bob was hired at the same time Sam was. And Bob, too, works in the room next door to Sam. Bob, too, sits in front of three crates with widgety wa or wadgets and widgets and making the widgety wadgets. You can understand how this can be a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> However, on Bob's first day, the boss walked up to him and handed him a check for a million dollars, post-dated 365 days from Bob's start date. Now, Bob and Sam share the exact same lunch break. And at first, they were both pleased with the work that they were doing. But around the three-month mark, Sam's mood begins to change drastically. He's not as talkative as he used to be, and he seems very, very melancholy. He, uh, things get even worse for him when the AC unit breaks down in the factory and things get real hot in the summer. Sam cannot believe that he committed himself to this job, and he wonders how much longer can he can endure. Every lunch hour, he complains to Bob. Now, Bob doesn't find the conditions ideal, but he has a smile on his face still. By the end of the sixth month, Sam is ready to shoot himself. His hands have gone numb, and he's going insane from the constant ticking of the clock in his room. And just when he can stand no longer, and he can't stand to hear another tick of that clock, he hears Bob whistling, coming through the wall. And Sam is shocked. But as the days wear on, Bob's whistling turns to humming, and then it turns to outright singing. Sam's not shocked anymore. Sam is angry. How can Bob be so jo jovial amidst these brutal conditions? Finally, Sam can take it no longer. He gets up, he kicks over the crates, and said, it's not worth it. I have made my last widgety wadget, and he storms out of the factory. The point? Your future hope 
transforms the way that you live out your present reality. Bob was able to endure and thrive in the midst of the same conditions as Sam because Bob had a greater future hope. Bob considered the present sufferings like nothing compared to the future payoff. And Christians can experience the same dynamics of Sam and Bob. And those who don't continue to discover the glories of their future hope in Christ will go the way of Sam. But those who mature in Christ and they grow into the glories of the gospel, like Bob, are sustained by the wonder of their future hope, even through some of the most trying times. So this morning, we're going to try to do three things together. First, we're going to talk about hope, imitators of Abraham. Second, we're going to talk about hope, the oath of God. And then third, we're going to talk about hope, an anchor for our souls. Beginning with, you guessed it, hope, imitators of Abraham. Gave it away with the one, didn't I? Now, the writer of Hebrews offers up an example of one who endured that he wants us and the people who are receiving this letter to emulate. And that person is Abraham. For his readers, the tale of Abraham would have been a very familiar story. But Abraham's journey was uh, from the time that he was given the promises to the time that he received them was anything but glorious and without hardship. The word used for obtain here in the text carries the original meaning of journeying towards. So Abraham obtained the promises in the sense that he finally arrived at them or he finally reached them. Abraham was called by God at the age of 75 to leave his father's house, his land, and his family and go off to where God would show him. Now Abraham is leaving behind much of what he is going to inherit. But in doing so, God promises Abraham a new inheritance and a new family. Abraham and his wife Sarah at this point don't have a child, but they deeply desire to have a child. And God promises that he's going to make a great nation out of Abraham. In other words, he promises Abraham a child. And this, perhaps more than anything, fueled Abraham's hope in the promises of God. But it's not as though the instant that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees that the promises of God come to fruition in his life. God does, not, God does give Abraham wealth and he gives him uh, status and he blesses those around him, such as Lot. But the thing that Abraham desires more than anything, that child, he does not receive. Indeed, it's not till another 25 years after God gave him the original promises that Sarah becomes pregnant and gives birth to Isaac, a child born to a man 100 years old and a woman in her 90s. Now, during those 25 years, Abraham's faith in the hoped-for promises of God was tested. And our writer says he needed to endure, and I want you to emulate that endurance. Now, it's not as if God is just delaying things to toy with Abraham. God is very purposeful in his timing and in his delay, just as he is with us. And we can see in the life of Abraham that the delay actually works to refine and strengthen Abraham's faith. One gets the impression as they read through the Abraham narrative that initially for Abraham, God started out as a means to an end. That what Abraham really wanted more than anything was a child. And God was the supernatural means to get that child. While his neighbors were trusting in the local gods of fertility treatments and in breach of fertilization, Abraham wanted the same thing, but he chose to get it through a different object. But gradually, as Abraham uh, must patiently endure the delay, God refines his faith so that his ultimate hope is no longer in the fruition of the promises of God, but in God himself. And there are many of us Christians and non-Christians who seek God in this fashion. We seek God not for himself, 
but as a means to get us what we really want, the comfortable life free from pain, that college that we really want to get into, that spouse that we have been dreaming of. We're not set apart from our neighbors by the things that we want. We desire the same things they do. Rather, we've just chosen this supernatural object that we call God as the means to obtain them. While they've chosen to seek it through more, be more natural means. And our prayers double when we're seeking this thing that we want, but as soon as we get it, they dissipate. God is more for us like the Christianized version of the genie in the bottle than the God of Scripture. He is like the giant cosmic vending machine that we put in the quarters of our good moral effort and prayers, and then we punch the dial and we wait for the big guy to deliver. And when he doesn't, we get very angry. We rage at God, and we call him a fraud. But all the while, we're the fraud. Because we claim to love him, but we really never did love him. We love the things of God and not God himself. We are like the friends of that annoying rich kid in school that everybody puts up with because his parents have a pool and the summer is hot as blazes. We all, like Abraham, come to God seeking his promises more than him. We hear the promise of Christianity as eternal life and freedom from judgment, and we're like, great, sign me up. But then, in that place, we're still violators of the first commandment because the promises of God are more precious to us than him. This is this sneaky religious idol that holds sway over our hearts. And our faith is stunted and weak if it remains in that place. We must mature from that place as the Lord of all wisdom leads us forward. Often he'll not answer our prayer for that thing that we really, really, really want because to grant us that would be our death. To give it to us, that comfortable life, that dream spouse, or whatever it is that we think is going to bring everything to right in our world will mean that we're going to wrap our arms around it in full embrace like a child clutching a teddy bear as we go into the dark night of death. Only we're going to wake up to the wretched horror that it doesn't have the power to save us. And so God, in love, slays, just like Abraham, to lead us to himself, wooing us out of the cave of our darkness into the squinting light of his glorious sun till we come to the realization that he's the one that we wanted all along. He was the one we were seeking the whole time. He was the one that our restless hearts could finally find rest in because he's the most worthy object. And one of the ways that I like to diagnose this problem in the heart amongst Christians is to ask them, why do you want to go to heaven? Would they want to go to heaven if there wasn't any judgment that you were hoping to avoid? Or most especially, do you still want to go to heaven if all you're going to find there is God? Would you still find that enjoyable? No friends, no family, no past heroes, just you and God, on and on for eternity. Now heaven indeed is going to be full of friends and family and all those who have died in Christ, and that's not the point. The point of the exercise is to take the temperature of our hearts and our desire or our lack of desire for God himself. But God does not just use the tool of delay in the life of Abraham or us, he also uses the tool of dilemma, where we must choose between God or the idol. On the altar, we must sacrifice our allegiance to either one or the other because we cannot serve both. And for Abraham, this happens in Genesis 22, where God tests him, and he asks him to sacrifice his only son. Abraham's shocked. In an obedience, maybe if you know the story, he climbs the hill, he builds the altar, he lays out the wood, he binds his son, and he raises the trembling knife. 
But as Abraham holds the knife in the air, a voice breaks the silence, and it's God's voice. And God says this in Genesis 22. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now in Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, God now knows that he is not just a means to an end for Abraham, but that he is supreme in Abraham's heart. We should not be surprised when God leads us into a crisis with our idol, asking us to choose between him or it. This, too, is part of the patient endurance that our author wants us to imitate. It's only because Abraham has 25 years of walking with God, where God unfolded his beauty time and time again to Abraham, that Abraham's heart has the um, affection to choose God over his idol or over even his most beloved son, Isaac. Now, thankfully, Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in the bushes. And the ram that the Lord provides takes the place of Isaac on the altar. For on the mountain of the Lord, it is said, a sacrifice will be provided for our idolatry and the gift to kill our idolatry. And the threads of the tapestry of redemption that are being woven into this text are manifold, and we don't have the time to explore them all now, even though I'd love to. It's like that moment when you look up at the clouds and suddenly you think that you see something, a face or a shape or something like that, and then the wind blows and it's gone in a moment. And I wonder if we were to capture this moment on the mountain in this Rembrandt-style painting, if perhaps in the distance you could look up and you saw in the clouds there the shape of a man on a cross with a crown of thorns dying in our place. This brings us to the second thing. Hope, the oath of God. You see, the certainty of the promise is also found in an oath. And because it's this point in the life of Abraham that our author to the Hebrews references when he quotes the words of the promise that God made to Abraham. Because just after Abraham finishes sacrificing the ram, God speaks to Abraham once more. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the sea as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now the oath gives Abraham deep assurance for the future. And when we understand it, and we understand the other one that is referenced in our text, the author of Hebrews says it's going to be an anchor for our souls. Now in order to reap the harvest of what the author is saying, we need to understand oaths the way that he does. And sadly, there's not a lot of places in our culture anymore where oaths are not just given flippantly. But one such place is still in the courtroom, where people swear upon the Bible to, to say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God. And in that binding oath, people are swearing to tell the truth, and if they don't tell the truth, they're calling to God to hold them to account to their words. They're swearing by something greater than themselves so that everybody around them can be assured that they're telling the truth, because if they don't, they're asking that object to hold them accountable. They're either going to incur the wrath of it or they're going to just bring disgrace upon it. In prior history, people would swear upon the king. And what they were saying was, if I don't fulfill my word, may I be accountable to the king. Or they'd swear upon their life or their head, meaning that if I don't fulfill my vow to you, may my life be given in ransom for it. Now the Jews would swear by God himself, but in a similar way to our courtroom, but with a far greater awareness of what they were doing. To swear by the name of the Lord and then to fail to fulfill your word was a violation of the third commandment. 
and thereby you incurred the punishment along with it, such a violation, which was death. But the apostle to the Hebrews states that since God had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, if God were to swear by anything less than himself, his promise would be less binding. If he were to swear by heaven and earth, then his oath would only last as long as the heaven and the earth endured. But by swearing by himself, his oath is eternal because God himself is eternal. But not only that, by swearing by himself, God is stating that I will hold myself accountable if I do not fulfill my promises to you. I will bear the consequences of my own wrath if I'm not faithful to bring about what I have sworn to you. Do you understand the magnitude of what God is saying here to Abraham? No matter what happens, Abraham, I will be faithful to my promises to you. No matter what you do or do not do, I will bring about what I have promised to you. Your faith can dip and waver, but mine will never. Your resolve can turn and waver, but mine will never. I will be 100% absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, wholly, truly, and completely faithful to my word. And even if you and your descendants do not uphold your end of the covenant, it will not be your son, Abraham, your only son bound to the wood to pay the debt, but it will be mine. Sometimes we get so used to people not being true to their word that we begin to think that God can do the same. But here in the life of Abraham, we're reminded how true and binding God is to his word. This oath, this promise that he gave to Abraham was followed through on when Jesus Christ, the God-man, climbed the mountain of Calvary. In Christ, we see God acting in fulfillment to his oath, that he would remain faithful even if we didn't. It's not Abraham leading his son, his only son, Isaac, up the mountain to pay the debt of our broken covenant, but it's God leading his son, his only son, up the hill to pay the debt of our broken covenant. This time, there was no voice from heaven that spoke at the last minute to stop what was transpiring, only silence. Abraham was called to offer his son so that God knew that he loved him, but God actually offered his son so that we might know that he loves us and how committedly faithful he is to his word. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to lie, we who have fled to, for refuge to, or have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So the oaths of God throughout scripture are given by him to bolster the assurance of the assurity of the promises by the people or for the people to whom those promises are given. Abraham and you and I. That God would send his son to pay the debt rather than break his oath shows us how utterly binded God is to his word. And this joyfully brings us to the third thing. Hope and anchor for the soul. Because here in our text, there is another oath referenced by the writer of Hebrews, and he wants us to bask in that glory of that oath as an anchor for our souls. And this oath is found in Psalm 110, and it forms the re much of the rest of the substance of what the author of Hebrews is going to exposit in this chapter and then going on into the next chapters. And Psalm 110, verse 4, reads like this. The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
In verse 20 of our text, the author mentions that Jesus is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and it's this oath that he has in mind. And he's already shown us how faithful God is to his word and that God gives oaths to bolster the faith of his people. So why does God take an oath about Christ's priesthood? And why is the fact that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek an anchor for our souls? Well, he's going to tell us many things, but we're going to hone in on one. But to do this, we need to see the world like our author does, a lot more Jewish than we're used to. We need to think in terms of the temple and the day of atonement, the day when the priest would make an offering for the sin of the people. And he'd do this in the outer court of the temple. That's where the altar was. He would, he would slay the bull in front of all of the people. And then he would take that blood and he would walk into the tabernacle or into the temple, into the very heart, the very center of it, the holy of holies, the very place where God said, my presence will dwell most palpably. And there, inside that place, he would find the ark. And the ark was basically a gold box. And inside the gold box was a couple of things, but one of them was the Ten Commandments. It was the relational agreement between God and his people. And you see, God has said to his people, I'm going to dwell among you, and I'm going to dwell over the ark between the two cherubim. And so God is sitting over top of this box. And that means when God looks down... He sees inside of the box the covenant, but he sees a broken covenant because of his people's sin. And so the priest would come and he would sprinkle blood on the ark so that when God looks down, he doesn't see a broken covenant, but he sees blood covering the people's sins. He sees a payment for the broken covenant. And after this was done, the priest would go back out and the people would celebrate a renewed relationship with God. So that's one piece. The author of Hebrews says that in the law we see only a shadow of the good things to come. And so the second piece is that we need to think in terms of the temple and the ascension of Christ. The reality of the shadow. The author of the Hebrews says that Jesus entered into not an earthly temple, but a heavenly one. So I want you to think of the temple as a reflection or as a microcosm of the macrocosm of heaven and earth. So earth is the outer court. And heaven is the most holy place. It's the place where God's presence dwells most palpably, where he truly sits enthroned between the cherubim. And so Jesus Christ is slain in the outer court as a sin offering. And then, just as the high priest would, Jesus takes that blood and he goes into the most holy place. He goes into heaven and there he applies his blood, not over the broken covenant of the Ten Commandments, but over broken covenant breaker such as you and I. So that when God looks down upon us, he doesn't see a broken covenant, but he sees the blood of Christ covering over us. Only, unlike the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Jesus sits down. He sits down in God's presence. And the message is profound. Me and my people here to stay. We're coming back to live in the presence of God. We are returning to Eden once again. So we, the author urges, are just like the people of old, only instead of a bull sacrificed for our sin, we have seen sacrifice before our very eyes, Christ on the cross. And then 
in the ascension, we watched heaven receive him. He passed by that curtain where we could see him no longer into the holy of holies, into heaven itself, where God sits enthroned between the cherubim. And there he sat down as our priest, administering the blood over broken covenant breakers. But he is not just our priest, says the writer of Hebrews, he is our pledge, because he is bringing all God's people with him into God's presence. And this hope, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, acts like an anchor for our soul. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain where Jesus has gone on a for, as a forerunner on our behalf. Now this is such a beautiful image that the apostle grabs from the nautical world, and I want you to see it. And hopefully, if I've done my job correctly and you're still with me this morning and you're tracking everything that we've woven together, my hope is that this is really going to pop for you because when I learned this, I bawled my eyes out in my office. So the word forerunner in Greek is prodomos, and it appears nowhere else in the New Testament. And when it's coupled with the nautical language of an anchor, it means something very, very special. And biblical scholar Lewis Talbot will explain for us. The Greek harbors were often cut off from the sea by sandbars, over which larger ships dare not pass till the full tide came in. Therefore, a lighter vessel, a forerunner, took the anchor and dropped it in the harbor. From that moment on, the ship was, ship was safe from the storms, although it had to wait for the tide before it could enter the harbor. The entrance of the small vessel into the harbor, that forerunner carrying the ship's anchor, was the pledge that the ship would safely enter the harbor when the tide was full. And because Christ, our forerunner, has entered heaven itself, having torn asunder everything that separates the redeemed cinder, sinner from the very presence of God, he himself is the pledge that we too shall one day enter the harbor of our souls and the very presence of God in the new Jerusalem. Jesus sits down. Jesus plants the anchor, himself as an anchor in the presence of God. Jesus, our forerunner, has entered into the inner harbor of God's glorious presence, and he has fastened himself there as an anchor for our souls, that we too shall one day dwell in the house of the Lord. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, and it's a perfect cube. Why? Because the only other place you find a perfect cube in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies, and God's presence is coming down to live amongst his people, and heaven and earth are going to be that true temple once again. And no matter what happens, our anchor holds fast as we await the tide. The storms of my life may rage all around us. The winds of doubt may blow through us with all their might. And the waves of sorrow may pound against our vessel, rocking it back and forth. And the sky may grow dark and wearisome with our sin so that we despair of ever seeing the sun again. But we are tethered to the anchor because it holds fast and secure. And when the tide of death finally begins to rise in our life and it's time for us to enter that harbor of eternity, the captain of our vessel, that great paraclete of our souls, the Holy Spirit, begins to crank the winch. And within each clank of the chain draws us safely home to eternity. God the Father on the shore, teary-eyed, waiting to embrace every single one of his sons and daughters. God the Son, our great anchor, refusing to yield even one ounce, even one inch of what he has won for us, holding fast no matter what strain we put upon him, and the Holy Spirit, that captain of our vessel, carrying us home into glory. So that's our hope 
firm and sure. Knowing the bigness and the surety of that hope should change the way that we live in the present. It should change the way that we experience the pains and the sorrows of life. Knowing that you and I don't just have a high priest, we have an anchor, we have a pledge. And he is tethered to every single one of us. And when the tide of death begins to roll, he will snatch us safely home into eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. God of glory, there is nobody like you. There's nobody that even comes close. Christ, there's nobody that shows such love for your people, such devotion, such willingness to lay your life down for their flourishing. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would see the surety of the gospel. We would see the surety of the hope that you have not only covered us, but that you have placed yourself as an anchor inside the veil, inside the very presence of God, that one day your people are going to live there with you. Father, we pray that as doubt rages around us, that as the storms of life and sorrow blow, that as we go through years of COVID and uncertainty, God, that that anchor would hold firm in a veil, that our hope, we would just be overwhelmed by the bigness of that hope and the glory of that hope, that we would want to be with you, that we would want to dwell with you, that we would see you as the most precious treasure for our hearts, and that we would long after you with every single fiber of our being. Holy Spirit, I pray that if there is people here this morning that do not know you in that way, I pray that you, in your mercy and your grace, would reveal yourself to them, that you would draw us deeper and deeper into you, that just the surety of the promise we would learn to trust in no matter what. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name, in the power of your most holy spirit.